Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. This is the Entree Architect Podcast, Episode 76. Welcome back to the Entrepreneur Architect Podcast. My name is Mark Arlapage, and this is the podcast dedicated to a successful life as a small firm architect. Whether you have plans to someday start your own firm, you're in the process of launching a startup, or you might be an experienced small firm architect just trying to make a difference, this podcast is for you. My goal is to inspire you to build a better business so that you may pursue your purpose with passion and live the life of your dreams. I want you to close your eyes. Well, not if you're driving, but if you're not driving, close your eyes and imagine. Imagine an architecture firm where the systems are in place, the people are in place, the roles and responsibility of everyone is established, both at the ownership level and the employee level. And the trust is so strong that everything gets done when and how it should. Imagine the benefits of such a firm. Imagine how enjoyable it would be to work at such a place. Imagine the quality of the projects and the profits that would result. Sounds too good to be true. Well, such places exist. Such architecture firms exist. And today's guest will show us how we can establish such a firm. Today on the Entree Architect podcast, architect, author, and business consultant Steve Wintner and I have a great conversation about how to establish a culture of accountability in your architecture firm. 
Support for everything we do here at Entrepreneur Architect is provided by our platform sponsor, FreshBooks. The easiest way to send invoices, manage expenses, and track your time. You can get a free 30-day trial just by visiting freshbooks.com slash architect. Mr. Steve Wintner, welcome to the Entrepreneur Architect podcast. Hi, Mark. Uh, thanks for being here today. That's my pleasure. Um, Steve, you're, you're an architect and a management consultant. Um, you're the founder of Management Consultant uh, Consulting Services, and you provide services to design firms of all sizes. Um, you've provided and continue to provide uh, local workshops for architects, uh, live workshops for, for architects, and, have, and then you've, you've dedicated your time to, to helping architects build better businesses, which is what I'm all about. That's, that's my main mission as well. So this will be a really exciting conversation. You're probably best known as the co-author of uh, Financial Management for Design Professionals, The Path to Profitability. Um, and members of the Entrepreneur Architect community may also recognize you as a recent guest blogger here at EntreeArchitect.com, where you contributed two great articles. One is Developing a Time Management Discipline, and the second article recently was Seven Key Financial Performance Indicators for a Successful Architecture Firm. So that that is, uh, I, I appreciate those contributions to the, to the, uh, to the blog. And I've, I've invited you here today on the podcast to, to, to get even deeper and to discuss your thoughts on establishing a culture of accountability at our firms and why that's so important to our success. But before we do that, I want to, to talk a little bit about you um, because I think you have a very interesting background and, I, and I'd like to just take a few minutes to allow you to share your origin story. So I'd like you to discuss you know, why you became an architect, when you became an architect, and, and sort of share the story of your journey to where you find yourself today. Well, uh, it goes back a really long way. Um, as, a, as a kid in school, I really never had much of a thought about what I was going to do for a career in my life. That was not something that I was focused on. I was always focused on uh, becoming a ball player. I figured I was going to become a professional ball player. Baseball. Yeah, baseball. Yeah. Uh, but I spent most of my my more, my days as a child in the summertime doing, uh, played all kinds of sports, but I just really loved baseball. And so uh, a career was never something that I spent much time thinking about. And it really didn't uh, come to me until I was in my senior year in high school. Uh, I wound up taking what was called a mechanical drawing, a mechanical drafting class, which uh, sounds pretty, uh, you know, boring and uh, not very much to it, but uh, I wanted to try it. I wasn't a great student in school. Uh, this seemed like a nice uh, way to get a better grade for something. Uh, I've always been artistic. I came from an artistic family. My mom and dad were both very talented artists. And I always liked to draw when I was younger. And uh, So I, I don't know how I put those two together, but somehow or other I decided to take this class. And, and the outcome of that was that after my my senior year was over, I wound up getting an A in both semesters in that class, the only A that I ever got in high school. <laughs> uh, but uh, that's really what turned me on, because right after that class and I graduated, I decided that I wanted to become an architect. Architecture always appealed to me. I always had a, uh, an affinity for building houses, especially houses, and 
I was always interested in how they went together and things of that nature. So uh, I did some research, and uh, over the summer I found a, a technical college in Brooklyn. I grew up in the Bronx, by the way, in New York. And um, I found a, a technical school in Brooklyn called the Institute of Design and Construction that was actually owned and operated by a former, uh, I think it was a deputy mayor for the city of New York called Vito Batista who was an architect, and uh, he had this this uh, o- this offer to uh, help those of us who wanted to become architects, or at least get a job in an architectural firm, to take his course. It was a two-year course. He accelerated into eight months, and uh, at the end of the eight months, he was guaranteed to have a job in an architect's office when it was all done. Wow. Wow. What year was that around? That was 1956. Okay. The end of 55, September 55 through uh, May 56. And in, uh, at the end of that uh, eight months, uh, which I love that class, I got A's in everything, which just continued to reinforce my, my thoughts about becoming an architect. But I knew I didn't want to go to college. I was absolutely certain I didn't want to go to college. I was more focused on making money. And so uh, they get they get me a job as a junior drafts person in a in an architectural firm, a mid sized architectural firm in the Bronx, no less. So everything was perfect. Uh, I had I had a job, I had income, I was working in a field that I was just excited about, and uh, it was those beginnings that led to uh, some of the things that uh, we're going to talk about this morning. Because um, I had a lot of good people who were very supportive and, at the time, without knowing what that word meant, mentored me and helped me to grow and develop and to uh, have a better understanding about you know, what an architectural firm is all about. So it was out of that very uh, early beginnings of not really being sure what I wanted to do came my desire to completely in- engross myself in this field of architecture. As it turned out, um, it became pretty obvious to me after about five or six years uh, in the industry, working in an architect's office, that I would always be an architectural drafts person unless I got a degree. So it was with that uh, in mind that I decided that I was going to uh, go back to college and get a degree. And so that's what I basically did. I, I relocated because a whole bunch of the guys in the neighborhood had moved to California, to the Los Angeles area, and um, they came back. Uh, for the summer, and at the end of the summer, they were going back to Los Angeles. And in the meantime, I had decided I was going to go to uh, one of three schools, uh, the University of Cincinnati, the University of California, uh, and the other one was uh, the University of Colorado. And so I applied, and I was accepted to two of the three. Uh, it, as it was, the, the university that turned me down is the university that I wound up going to. They actually turned me down because they didn't think that I had uh, at the proper high school grades. So long story short, I wound up convincing them that I was worthy and that I would do well, and they accepted me, and I came in as a transfer student because I had been attending the Cooper Union School of Art and Architecture in, in New York for a year after uh, I had gotten a few jobs under my belt, and I had some more understanding. I started school in New York at the Cooper Union. So anyway, 
that was where I, I got my education, and uh, it was a great education, and, and I worked all of the time that I was in school, so I continued to work and go to school at the same time, and it was uh, an existence that I really enjoyed. And so over those uh, early beginnings, uh, I got myself deeply ingrained, and it's just been one wonderful journey after another, and having had a lot of great people in my life to uh, help me move forward, and I've always uh, felt this this drive and this passion to continue to excel and do well in, in anything that I undertook as a, as a job, as a, as a, as a task, as a assignment. And uh, I was fortunate that my employers recognized that and kept uh, on advancing me. So that's, that's how it all began. Okay. Well, I was going to ask you who your favorite baseball team is, but seeing that you grew up in the Bronx, I think that's obvious. No, it isn't. No. Oh, it is. I'm not a Yankees fan. Oh, Never my goodness. Been. No, I, I was a die-in-the-wool Giant fan. My dad and my mom were Giant fans. And uh, they were pretty close to the Bronx because it was right across the river, the Harlem River, from the Yankee yeah. Stadium uh, where the Giants played in the Polo Grounds. And so, uh, no, I was a Giant fan. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's great. So how did you, how did you, you and now you're, you're a, you're still an architect, but you're, you're a, a business consultant. So how did you go from architecture to business consulting, what, what, where, where did that passion come from? Well, uh, it it just grew out of my career. Uh, I, I've never been uh, what you might term a design architect. I, I enjoy design, I respect design, I understand design, I can design, but that's not what spinned my beanie. What really got me going was getting my hands on the project and working with the client and doing the entire thing from beginning to end. I guess that's really a, an outgrowth of my childhood, uh, always being in control of my environment, uh, the things that happened in my early childhood that led to that kind of a mentality. And I just wanted to have more to do with the entire thing just than this limited area of design, which I understood the importance of and I understood how to deal with it, but I wanted more than that. So uh, I've always been what I would consider to be a management or an operations architect. So. I became a project manager, I became a project director, uh, I became a uh, director of operations, so I just continued to you know, grow and grow and expand in terms of its uh, responsibilities, and the more it grew and the more responsibility I had, the more I enjoyed it. So, so today we, you wanted to talk about, or we wanted to talk about, we, talk, we, we, we had a sort of a, a call before the call. And and we talked about many different subjects, and we we decided to talk today about culture of accountability. And maybe um, we can have you back another time to talk about some of the other subjects because I think I, I I love talking to you. So I think that that um, today we'll talk about the culture of accountability, and we'll have you come back to do some other things. So so talk about what that is and what that means because that's sort of a very interesting uh, couple of words or a few words there. But um, what does that really mean, and what is it? Well, uh, this is what I discovered. I became a management consultant after I retired as an architect. I stopped practicing. I left, uh, I left my last employment, resigned from my last employment, and decided that uh, I was actually going to go in to become a construction administrator because I love construction work and uh, didn't find any work available. I was living in Houston at the time, and, uh, and, and so... Uh, a lot of the guys that I had worked with, my colleague, the guys, I was the director of operations, so a lot of the guys who had been working under my supervision 
would call me because they had branched off and taken uh, an opportunity to start their own small firms, and they asked me for help because they knew that I knew these things about running an office. Uh, and so uh, it's, it's in that beginning because people say, can you help me with this, can you help me with that, that I started doing management consulting and realized that there might be absolutely some kind of an, a career in this. There might be opportunities that I can continue to do this, and that's what I've been doing since 1985. Uh, but accountability came about because uh, in the course of my career, I used to have my own small firm uh, in Walnut Creek, California. And in, in that uh, ownership of that firm, it was a partnership. I had a great partner. Uh, I recognized the things that always meant the most to me. It didn't seem to mean that much to the guys and the ladies that I employed in my firm. And what I'm talking about is a sense of ownership about their work. They didn't seem to uh, feel that it was anything more than a nine-to-five job. Yeah, they got their job done. They did well. They were professional. But there was something missing. Uh, there was this, this ingredient I had always had. Regardless of what my position was in the firm, it was, it was always my feeling that Whatever I did, I was going to do as though this was my project. I took ownership of what I was doing because I felt responsible for what I was given to do. And that came out of my childhood and the things that I learned from my parents and my grandparents that instilled in me that if you're going to do something, do it with a lot of passion and do it well. Do it to the best of your ability and be responsible for what you're doing. And that meant a lot to me and it stuck with me and it still does today. And so... This accountability sort of came from recognizing that as I read things and learned more about the business world, uh, that there are a lot of major corporations in this country that have established and implement and are basically running a culture of accountability for their firms. But I guess the most popular one, the most well-known one of all of them is Google. Uh, it's a firm absolutely embraces accountability at all levels. And what I began to recognize as a management consultant as I dealt with more and more firm owners is that the uh, owners of firms would take on the responsibility for everything that they had to provide for their firm, but they didn't seem to want to share very much of that with their people. Right. Uh, there, was, there was a lot of this uh, creation of what I refer to as a we-they environment. In other words, uh, in the vernacular of business, the, the labor management dichotomy, okay, the, the, the split between what labor and management is. Well, I never understood that. I, I, I've never been in the business world, per se, like that, so I never understood that, but I recognize that that's not healthy. Right. That there so, are certain problems that accrue when you do something like that. Right, so you're and saying, was, so you're saying basically, yeah. they, I tell you what to do and you do it. Exactly. And, and not only that, but in a Firms, and I've had this, my experience of this myself, they didn't only just tell you what to do and when to do it, but they told you how to do right. it. And that, to me, makes absolutely no sense at all. We're dealing with an, an environment of very highly educated, well-trained, smart, intelligent individuals, mm -hmm. men and women, who, left to their own devices, would probably do a, a better job than their own employers would do. And so... The, the ability to take on responsibility is lost because they're not being given a chance to do that. So I believe that 
in any kind of an operation, I don't care what kind of a business it is, there ought to be something that has to do with more of a collaborative environment in which you're invited to participate at the highest possible level of what you're capable of doing and be held responsible for that. And the people, in my opinion, I, I don't mean to upset anybody, but in my opinion, the people who are least willing to be held accountable are those who run the firm. Right. They seem to want to, quote unquote, pass the buck. But they don't seem to want to pass the buck at the same time. Personally, I had the good fortune of working for the best firm in the world, the largest firm in the world, Gensler and Associates. And I was uh, an officer of that company for a number of years. And I worked for them for 11 and a half years. And I understood from what Art uh, provided for us in the way of leadership how to run an organization. And it perhaps came from that, if that more than any other thing, apart from my own experiences and what I learned and what I observed, that taught me that there is a better way. There is another way to do this. And, uh, in fact, I don't know if you're familiar with it, Mark, but uh, Art just wrote a book called Art's Principles, 50 Years of Learning How to Run a world-class business. Mm -hmm. I haven't heard and, that. Uh, it, it's, it's on Amazon. It's available. It's really inexpensive, and it's, it's an absolutely delightful read. I mean, of course, I'm, I'm passionate about it because he's a former employer of mine, and I have a lot of uh, respect and admiration for Art. But the, the book itself is so wonderful. There's so many really down-to-earth, easy-to-read, easy-to-understand, easy-to-grasp concepts and tips for how to become a better employer and how to have better success in your organization. And if you, if you look at it and you see it in context, for me anyway, what it says is this is a man who understands what accountability is. Everybody's going to be accountable for whatever it is that they've got to do. So that's really what I'm talking about, is taking responsibility, owning what it is you do, you say, and how you act, respond, and talk. Right. And, and so you're, talk, you're talking about Art Gensler, just to make sure everybody understands yeah. that. Um, so if... if, if the listeners hear what you're saying and agree with you and like and like that idea. I love that idea. Um, and I'm hearing a lot of that recently in the business news, in the business world. A lot of, of, of large corporations are moving in that direction. Most recently, I, I read an article about Zappos basically making everybody accountable for themselves. Yeah, um, that's another big problem. There's, there's basically no, no management layering. Everybody is doing their own thing. They have their own roles and responsibility, and everybody's just doing it. Um, Let's take a quick break to thank FreshBooks for support as a platform sponsor. Because as a platform sponsor, FreshBooks has provided funding and support for our mission here at Entrepreneur Architect to become an influential force in the profession of architecture. They recognize the need for small firms to build better businesses in order to be better architects. Have you downloaded your free 30-day trial yet? I encourage you to do that right now, today. They set up a special page just for us where we can sign in and request our free trial. Give it a look. It's free and it won't take more than a few minutes to sign in and look around. And I think once you see how easy FreshBooks is to use, you'll want to give it a spin. And I, I recommend just trying it for one project. You can just sign in, get your free 30-day trial, put one project, one client in the system, send out your next invoice to that client by email, and see what happens. Give it a try. It's free, 30 days. Go to freshbooks.com architect, 
And make sure in the how did you hear about us section, make sure you, you put in there Entree Architect, E-N-T-R-E Architect. So they know that we sent you and they continue to support uh, Entrepreneur Architect as a platform sponsor. Free 30-day trial, freshbooks.com slash architect. And so if if a if a firm or or the listeners that that are listening to us today like that idea and they want to know more how, how what are the steps that a firm would take to implement something like that in the culture of their own firms well i mean i guess it has to do with the firm itself so there there's not a single formula for how to do this there's no how to okay uh, it has a lot to do with the ownership structure. What kind of a firm is it, number one? Uh, number two, well, how big is it? Uh, in the smaller firm, the opportunities for accountability are greater in the sense that it's easier because there's less people to get on board. But I'll, I'll just tell you what I think are the essential things. Uh, first of all, the leadership of the firm, the owners of the firm, whoever they are, whether it's an individual, whether it's a couple of people, whether it's a handful of people, doesn't matter. Whoever are the leaders of the firm, the decision makers for the firm, the officers of the firm, have to buy into this concept. So if, if you're not going to buy into the concept that there ought to be accountability at all levels in your firm, then it's over. It's done. There's no reason going any further. It stops right there. Okay? But if they do buy in, then the next important level is to get everybody else in the firm to buy in. So there's a, there's a whole bunch of steps that have to be followed to go through what it takes to, one, introduce this to a principal of a firm or, or the, the principals of a firm. And then if they are, are willing to let you talk to their people and they buy into the concept, they're willing to at least go to the next level and let you talk to their people and be able to make a presentation that, uh, resonates with the employees. So I take it to the very basic level. My, my pitch, so to speak, if I was going to put it into a simple sentence, is simply to say, why wouldn't anybody want to have the opportunity to be in control of their professional destiny in their employment? And why wouldn't you, Mr. or Mrs. Owner, want to have a room full of people, an office full of people who are all on the same page as you are, trying to do as much as they can to make your firm as good, as successful, as financially rewarding as you want it to be? Uh, the, the answer to that question is obvious. Everybody would want that. Why right. wouldn't they? Exactly. So, so there's nothing about it that's, quote-unquote, unappealing. It has a great appeal. So that's what it takes. It takes the ability to get on board the ownership and then the people in the firm to buy into the concept and then begin to work out the details of what it is that has to be done to make this happen. And, and so what, I mean, it sounds, I, it sounds too good to be true. It sounds truthfully, Steve, it sounds idealistic. I mean, how do you get people, how do you get everything done and how, what's the incentive for the employees to do what they're supposed to do if there's no consequence if they don't do it? How does that work? Ah, whoa, whoa, whoa. I never said no consequence. Right. I simply said that everybody's got to be willing to take responsibility for what it is they do. Right. If you take responsibility, there are consequences. They may be absolutely wonderful consequences, but they could be dire consequences. 
depending on what your performance is. One of the things that's always troubled me about our industry is that when it comes time at the end of the year, which seems to be the time of year that everybody looks at each other and says, okay, how much bonus are we going to get? Are we going to get a bonus this year? Uh, and the bosses all get together and say, well, how much of this, this big pot of profit are we going to distribute to the staff? So it's at that point in time where they start making what I consider to be subjective decisions about those things. And it shouldn't be. I think those kinds of answers should come from in a analyzing, evaluating, and discussing the performance level of the individual throughout the year and what did they contribute to making that kind of uh, success out of the firm for that year. The more they contributed, the more they should uh, share in the reward. The less they contributed, the less they should share. So if you're in a, in a, a culture of accountability, Everyone in the firm knows that the better I do, the more reward I'll get. And is and that, the boss is, 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 that. Is there a, a formal structure on, on how that works? How, how you know, if, you, if I do X and I work at this level and I perform at this level, I get Y? Well, I don't know that you could assign a formula. Again, it's independent to each firm. Every firm is unique. So in each firm, they're going to make certain policy decisions about that. But let me just tell you this. Again, I'm going to go back to Gensler Associates because yep. it's the greatest example that I can refer to out of personal experience. We got evaluated twice a year. Our people who, who, who were over me, my supervisors, knew what I was doing and talked to me about what I was doing and explained to me what I needed to do better and what I was doing very well and to continue to do that. Okay? Well... I'm, I'm being immodest, but I never had a bad review mm -hmm. because I wouldn't allow myself to do anything that was less than perfect, less than the best possible job I could do. So I applied myself diligently, and I was rewarded accordingly. And I came to Gensler after closing my own small firm after three years. So I understood what it was like to be an owner. I understood what it meant to have employees. I understood what it meant to be responsible. So... It was just as a continuation of my mentality about being responsible for everything that I did. So you can set up a policy, you can set up formulas, you can, but all of that is related to the firm and how the firm operates. And nothing really changes in the firm. It's just the mentality about mm -hmm. how you go about your job. It's a mindset. It is a mindset. It's an ownership mindset. And I call it, if you want to expand this, it's a culture of accountability through self-management. I mean, that's a book that I'm working on right now. Mm -hmm. I'm, I, I'm, I'm convinced that there is absolutely no reason in the world why any firm ought to have people managing other people. There's and no and that's, that's really the, the key, is that it's, it's more than just a culture of accountability. It's a culture of accountability of, of self-management, that, that the people, everybody in the firm, they all very clearly understand their roles and their responsibilities. They accept those roles and responsibilities, and they do their job of those roles and responsibilities. And as long as everybody's doing that, your firm succeeds, and then everybody benefits from by, by providing those services and, and fulfilling those roles and responsibilities. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Steve, have and, you... And if you Go think ahead. about it, why would you want to spend money to have a high-priced person manage and spend their time supervising another high-priced person. 
Yeah, and, the and there's the there's there's hundreds of firms all throughout the world that that people that have employees that that's their job. The middle managers exactly. of of their job is to just make sure everybody else is doing their job. Exactly, and so, I don't understand that mentality. And so, by shifting to this other culture of accountability, you can remove that layer of management, save the firm a lot of money, and distribute that money throughout the rest of the firm to to everybody who's working. Exactly, and that's. My point being, in, in our industry, in the, in the design professional services industry, that applies perhaps more so than a lot of other general businesses, because it is made up of very highly intelligent, well-educated, well-rounded individuals. Are there, are there people who don't fit that mold? Of course, but those people are always promoted to the competition. Yeah, and, and you know, my audience is mostly small firms. That's really the the community, the entrepreneur architect community are mostly small firms and sole proprietors. And and sort of out of the necessity, many small firms are already set up that way. But their but their mindset is that they need to change to go the other way as they grow, that they become this the bigger firm and the more established firm they start creating these layers of management, and that's the mindset. But maybe they should take what they're learning now as a small firm and as they grow, continue to do that and to build on that and to create this culture of accountability from, from scratch. And as they grow, it's just a, a bigger, better uh, culture. Absolutely. Look, I joined ART when the firm was 42 people. Okay? 42 people. That's a yeah. pretty small firm. I mean, and now there's thousands. Standard. There are over 4,000 employees in that, in that firm right now. Do you think that Art was different when we were 42 than he is today? No, he is absolutely not. He just continued to allow the firm to evolve with all of the same values and core principles that he had as a firm of 42 people and that he started the firm with with three people. Yeah. So it is. It's a mindset. It's, a, it's an understanding about what will work best and what's in the best advantage of everybody. And if we had everybody pulling in the same direction, everybody with the same goals, the same... Uh, values and principles, the firm has got to improve. The firm has got to be better. Right. And, and as a consultant, have you been through this process with any of your clients? Oh, yeah. I've started this process with at least three firms. Uh, they're in different stages of development. Uh, one of the things about this kind of thing is not something that is going to happen overnight. Right. You're not going to change overnight. Change is very difficult for most people. And especially in a small firm, there's so much to do. You can't just you know, take the time and the energy to devote it to something like this, which is not yeah. what I would consider to be productive time. It will be productive over the long haul, but in terms of, of your daily stream of cash and, and income, that's not going to help it. So you've got to be able to do this over time. So it's, this is not a horse race. This is a marathon. This is something you begin to look at and you begin to implement through pieces at a time, little pieces at a time, working out the pieces of the puzzle so they can put, be put together. And then as you develop as a firm, as you, as you continue to work together, you learn how to make these things work better as pieces of a puzzle that go together. So it's, it's, it's clearly a long-term process. So it's, it's not something that you just decide one day and you have a meeting and you say, okay, now we're going to have a culture of accountability and everybody starts doing their yeah. job. It's, it's a yeah. long-term. So do you, do you put together... A, a plan of action on how to do this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, every, every firm that I start with, again, because of where they are, who they are, the size they are, 
the leadership of the firm, the kind of firm that they are. I develop for them a customized plan. I don't have something I pull out of the drawer and, and apply to them. Here's steps one, two, three, and four. You go do that. I, I am very hands-on with the process. I keep the process very much a, uh, an open dialogue and communication with the leadership and with the group of uh, employees that I'm working with. And every one of the employees that's involved in the firm is involved in the process of making these decisions uh, that will lead up to submitting to the ownership the recommendations they have for what to do about these things. And it's all based upon identifying, finding out what can we do better, what's missing, what's not working, what is working, how do we multiply what's working and change from those things that are not working to something that will work. So it's, it's a lot of time and effort and energy. So is it expensive? I don't think so. I don't consider myself to be expensive. I think that uh, it's the value that you bring to the company. And I think that I can I can attest to other firms that have been through this and are going through this with me the value that they have understood and recognized that comes from this. Yeah. What are what so, are some of the benefits of firms that that do take on this this plan and, and implement it? Well, okay. Uh, essentially, you're, you're you're creating an environment that has to be built upon common goals. So if that's the first point that you point out, is that you're going to create common goals where there's an alignment of the firm's vision and mission statements throughout the firm, which in time, if it isn't already there or it has started, will continue to embellish and enhance an environment of trust, which is the number one thing. I mean, yeah. you can't have this kind of thing unless there's trust. In, from, from in both ways, both from the top down Going and up and, and down. Yeah, absolutely. And and this whole thing about up down, bottom up, that, that goes away. It becomes yeah. more of a linear thing. There, there's management, and then there's operations. And so, uh, but the point of it is that everybody has a level of responsibility. Everybody's pulling in the same direction. They're just pulling different things to get there. Some with a greater load than others, based upon their experience and their knowledge. And so. The, the more you do, the more you're willing to do, the more you're willing to learn, the challenge you put to yourself to grow and develop becomes something that's self-enhancing. You, you get an, an individual's enhanced feeling of, of motivation and uh, encouragement, and, and out of that becomes an overall uh, recognition of the firm's integrity. That's the next question, is where's the integrity in the firm? Well, this kind of thing promotes trust, it promotes integrity, promotes encouragement, and promotes stimulation. All of those things are good for the morale of the team. Okay? And the last thing is that when you do this together, you get consistency. And if there's one thing that I found in dealing with firms, especially small firms, people come in from all different kinds of other firms, and they bring their bad habits with them. Yeah, I, I've seen that happen. Everybody is doing it a different way. There's no efficiency. There's no effectiveness. There's no real profitability. It's one of the reasons why professional design firms don't make the kind of profit they need to be making. It's my assertion that there is not an architect or an engineering firm that should not be making at least a minimum of 20% on every project they do. And that is attainable. And it's what I help my clients to learn how to do. So all of these things are pieces that have to be recognized, understood, dealt with, created, put together, developed, and that's all an individual process based on the firm and how they're made up. It it it, it sounds fantastic. It does it it sounds like the by doing this there's lots of benefits to the firm, to the employees and to the ownership 
and that and that the management it becomes a very happy place to work and and very comfortable and you can you can express your passions there does it also trickle down to projects to do do projects get better oh absolutely it has to get better because everybody becomes more efficient more effective uh the the whole delegation process becomes more effective i mean delegation in so, so many firms is Hey, Jack, Mary, you come over here. You're going to do this, and you're going to do this, and this is the way you're going to do it, and I need it done in three days, period. That's not delegation. That, that's, that doesn't allow for any growth or development. It doesn't allow for anybody to think for themselves. They're being led by the nose. Those people are too smart, too intelligent, too well-educated to be treated that way. So you, you create an environment in which Delegation becomes, as Covey says, a stewardship kind of thing. Right. You, you communicate everything you need to know that the other person is going to have to know about what you're asking them to do, and then let them do it. You know, give them the parameters and tell them what the out product has to be, what the end result's got to be, and when it's got to be done, and discuss the timing to make sure that that's reasonable, and then let them go do it, and then just come back and check up with them every once in a while, and stop looking over their shoulders. Right, and, so, the pro- and the projects, the quality of the projects go up. The the time of implement uh, implementation for the project, the actual project schedule reduces because there's everybody's doing their job when they're supposed to be doing it. And as a result, the firm's making more money. There's more incentive yep. to make more money. It's more incentive exactly. to get things done quicker because everybody's going to benefit from it getting done quicker. There's a benefit to having it done a very high quality. There's, it, it all trickles down to a higher profitable firm. Yeah, I, I don't like the word quicker so much, uh, Mark, but I, I think that it does get more efficient and right, more efficient. effectively right. accomplished. That's a better word. So uh, it's, it's a better process because it, it's more uh, well thought out, more uh, well applied with, with the people and the skills that they have so that it can become more effective and more efficient. Right, right, and therefore more profitable. Which is really what and keep, keeping your employees uh, informed, educating them, allowing them to develop and grow and expand uh, is a plus. It's not a minus. You're not to subject them to uh, some kind of uh, indentured slave labor kind of thing. You want them to be as good as they can be. There's a reason why Gensler has the very lowest attrition rate of any firm in yeah, the country. I was just going to say that people don't want to leave there. Yeah. I mean. I was with them for 11 and a half years. I could still be with them today. I mean, there are people that I still, I used to work with who worked under me when I was there who are just now retiring. Gensler has created more millionaires than any other firm in the world in this industry, okay? And that's not by mistake. That's not by some quirk of circumstance. It's, it's all been very well thought out, very well carried out, very well implemented with an intention to make everybody a part of the team. Yeah. Is there, is, if somebody wants to learn more about this, because we only have so much time to talk about this, are there, is there any additional reading material or any sort of resources that you, you can recommend? Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to suggest, first of all, one of the books that I personally felt had a lot to do with my growth and development and understanding about business was reading Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Yeah, I've recommended that several times. I, I completely agree with you. One of my favorites. All right. 
that that's a, that's an excellent excellent book. I'd also Another recommend book. the the audio version of that because you can put that Absolutely. in the car, and every time you get in the car, you'll you can put it on loop, and you can listen to it all day long for the rest of your life, and you'll never get enough of it. I, I read the book and I did the audio book, and I agree with you completely. I think the audio book is a lot more effective. Yeah, okay? especially with Covey actually speaking it, because to hear his voice and to hear his intonation yeah. is is yeah. so inspiring. It is, very much so. I agree. Uh, another book is a thing called Winning with Accountability by Henry J. Evans. Excellent book about concepts of accountability and what's involved. Now, that's from a business point of view. That's got nothing to do with this industry. Yeah. Uh, Covey's book is generic also, but uh, if you wanted to focus on in this industry, where are the best tips you can get in the industry? I think Art's new book is one of the best, mm-hmm. Art's Principles. Just go on Amazon. It's, I think it's $14. It's a soft cover book and you can read it in a day yeah it's i'll put links to, i'll put links to all of this right on the show notes uh, this is episode 76 so people could just go to uh, entrearchitect.com slash episode 76 and i'll have links to everything that that steve is talking about there's another one called kiss i'm sorry kiss theory goodbye by robert prosen kiss theory goodbye yeah robert prosen and and that's a that's a really wonderful uh, book about learning how to absolutely improve the application and the activity level and stop thinking about it so much. Forget about the theory. Yeah. Uh, get into getting it done. Uh, do the Nike thing. Just do it. Yeah. And then then certainly uh, you know again being immodest, I would recommend our book, Financial Manager for Design Professionals. The path to profitability because it does include a whole lot of things that have to do with operations and running the firm. In fact, my co-author uh, Michael Tardis and I are in the midst of rewriting the book as an e-book that we're going to hopefully self-publish before the end of this year. We're oh, almost great. done, so that'll be out as a uh, an electronic uh, book that people can get on the internet. Yeah, keep me posted on that, and I'll uh, I'll spread the word when it comes when it goes live. There's, there's, a, there's an untold number of articles on this subject. I mean, I've written so much about this subject over the years. I just came across something uh, recently by a gal by the name of um, Elizabeth Stincelli, S-T-I-N-C-E-L-L-I. She's with Stincelli Advisors, and she's got something that's a blog uh, that I found. I don't remember where I got it, how I found it, but you could go to her website, which is stincelliadvisors.com, and see, it's called Barriers to Employee Accountability. Wonderful, short, brief, succinct. She states three basic things that need to be done. I mean, it's perfect. It's so well written, so uh, adaptable to any kind of a business to understand what is it going to take to get the people to be a part of this. I don't think the people are a problem. My problem has never been the people. My problem has been the, the management of the firm, the leadership of the firm buying in. Because there's always this concept of threat. You know, there's yeah. a threat to their security. There's a threat to their position. That's nonsense. All that, all that is, in my opinion, is ego. And if you have an ego in your firm, your firm is stifled. You're not going to get where you need to go. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's also, I, you know, you, you use the word culture. I think that's the culture of architecture. Traditionally, that's how architecture has been. And I think that with with 
people like you and what I'm doing. I'm trying to also do that. You know, I'm sharing everything I do here on the podcast and in the blog and in, and intentionally doing that in, to encourage other architects to do the same thing so we can all be transparent about what we do and we can all share. And by sharing, everybody will start benefit. And then the, then the entire profession starts to benefit by sharing. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more, Mark. I, I mean, my, my whole premise of my operation, what I do, I don't do for the money. My wife has accused me so many times of saying, you would do this for free if you could if you're financially wealthy. I said, yeah, I would, because yeah. I'm so passionate about my industry. I'm so passionate about what I'm doing, because all I want to do is share everything that I've learned over these years of my career with my colleagues, and I want to be able to impart to them the benefits of what I've gained so that they can have the opportunity to see if it works for them. So, I mean, it's why I wrote the book. It's why I did 20 years of workshops for the AIA. It's why I'm writing this next book. It's why I write all these articles. It's why I share everything I have because I think it's the only way that we're going to get better is if we help each other to get better. Yeah, and thank you for doing what you do, Steve. Well, thank you. I, this is a wonderful opportunity that you've provided to be able to communicate uh, my thoughts and my passion about this subject. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed our conversation. Are you available to be contacted if if somebody had any questions or even wanted to retain your services? Absolutely. You know, whether they want to retain my services or not, I'll respond to any questions, any comments. Uh, I'd love to hear from people who will tell me success stories of what they've started. That'd be wonderful if I can help them, if I can guide them uh, without them having to worry about retaining my services. I'd be happy to do that. Uh, as a way of giving them a, a, another boost, another push. Uh, I'll do whatever I, I can do, and I'm, I'm always uh, pleased and, and, and just absolutely uh, honored to be contacted and ask questions to help them in any way that I can. So what's the best way for them to contact you? Well, my, my website is available on LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn. I have a profile on LinkedIn. You can find out more about my things. My website is www.managementconsultingservices.com, and my email is slwintner at managementconsultingservices.com. Okay, great. And I'll have again. I'll have all of that at episode seventy-six at the at the blog, and so everybody can just go there and get direct links to everything that you're doing. Uh, to your email as well as your your website. Right. So, Steve, I I appreciate uh, I appreciate you for your long history of service to our profession, both as you know, both as an architect and a, a business consultant. So, thank you for what you do. Well, it's it's really my pleasure, and and I'm so delighted to be able to have the opportunity to uh, at least express my opinions and thoughts about this. And, that people might find it of value. Yeah, well, I'm sure this will be a very popular episode and and, uh, I'll definitely invite you to come back and talk some more about some other subjects if you're interested in doing that. I really would. I've got other passions. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be great. So so for today, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to join me today on the podcast. Thank you, Mark. If you like this episode, please go to iTunes and leave me a review because this is how you may help me spread the word about Entrepreneur Architect and our mission to become an influential force in this profession. You can go to entrearchitect.com slash iTunes or while you're in iTunes searching for all your music and all your other podcasts, search iTunes for Entrepreneur Architect and you'll find us there. Hit review and let us know what you should think. 
That is a wrap for today's show. Show notes and a direct link to download this episode may be found at entrearchitect.com slash episode 76. And before we go, quote of the week. This week's quote is by Art Gensler, Steve's uh, former employer and mentor. Art Gensler says, One reason Gensler has been so successful is that we run our firm like a business. What I mean by this is that we continually reinvest in our business. We offer competitive wages. We reinvest in people, offer profit sharing. We incorporated all kinds of things that architects never thought about. I did this because I wanted to hire people and ask them to stay forever, not work on a project to project basis. And that is why Gensler is the largest, most successful architecture firm on the planet. My name is Mark Arlapage and I am an entrepreneur architect. I'm in Atlanta this week. I'll see you next week on the show. Have a great one. mentioned it to my family but in terms of telling people like oh yeah we're doing this i'm looking for projects you got anything i'm I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me dreaming of launching your own architecture firm well we'll buckle up for a wild ride with emerging the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm where do we begin we don't even know what type of business to formalize as is it an llc is it an llp like how are taxes i mean the list is astronomical season one featured founders jeffrey lexi and chris owners of level studio architecture are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio one evening stumbled into one last dive we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that, (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, 
Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast. It's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is going to be a priority. When the job is done, we're going to actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.